The scripture reading today is from Luke 22, 39-46. Um, when you're there, please stand for reading the Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like you uh, to think for a moment with me. Uh, about a time in your life where you were particularly stretched thin. Um, There's probably many different moments you could think about that would fit a category like that. It's a pretty broad thing for me to ask you to think about. Obviously, in this text, we're dealing with something, uh, uh, a season, uh, really this climactic series of events that happen in the life of Jesus, where he is being stretched to what seems to us to be a, a kind of breaking point. And the reason I ask you to think about what you would do in a situation where you're stretched thin is because it gives us a little bit of an ability to, um, as, as readers of the text, uh, try to understand what is going on in the drama of the moment. I've mentioned in the past, one of the uh, greatest dangers in reading the Bible uh, is familiarity to the, point of, uh, to the point where you can't be surprised anymore by what the scripture presents to you. So when the scripture presents Jesus as uh, being in agony, and we read that and we go, yes, of course he was in agony, but also he resurrects. And so we, we downplay the dramatic parts because we're familiar with it, and so we don't really feel the weight of what's going on. But this text is going to stretch us in more than just that one way. Um, it's going to stretch us in a number of ways. And so um, let me tell you about a time where I was stretched uh, when I was in high school, uh, my senior year. Uh, I was at a school where they would offer us uh, AP classes to take, and uh, as if you were uh, a good student, and my mom wanted me to be a good student, uh, you, were to, you were supposed to take these AP classes and get some kind of a college credit uh, for yourself so that when you would go off to college, you wouldn't have to take those classes uh, again. You would save money and really uh, you know, do well for yourself, make the best of your time in high school. Well, I was uh, in this senior year, I was in a number of AP classes, uh, some of them I was forced to be in, uh, and one of them in particular I was looking forward to being in, which was called AP uh, Literature. Uh, and in that class, you uh, are going to read a number of uh, old American classics, really Western classics, and you're supposed to read them, uh, usually uh, read a lot of them, discuss the meaning of these books, and, and really learn about American Western literature, and on the way, get college credit. Now, for those of you who know me, uh, you know that at this point, this stage of my life, I really do enjoy reading. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I really did not enjoy reading. And so uh, what happened is I sat down the first day in that class, 
and I got the syllabus. We were going over the syllabus with, uh, with the teacher. And I remember uh, putting the syllabus in my backpack when the class period was over and walking not to my next class, but to the guidance counselor's office and dropping that class because I did not want to do any of the reading or not nearly as much of that reading as was assigned. I saw that we were going to read something like uh, 12 books over the course of the semester, which to me seemed like an insane amount. And so I was being stretched or I would have been stretched by that class, but I decided uh, upon seeing it looming on the horizon, I was just going to do my best to not deal with the stress that that would have put me in. Um, and the reason I, I bring up that example is because uh, I mentioned uh, there's a number of things in this text that are going to stretch us. Um, but if you aren't uh, paying attention to what's going on, uh, particularly if you're a convinced Christian, uh, you, you don't want to often go through the, the stretches that this text will put us in. For instance, let me just point you to a number of things that we're going to look at that if you're a, a convinced Christian will make you maybe slightly uncomfortable. Okay? But I'm going to ask those questions anyway. When Jesus is praying in the garden, uh, notice he seems to be in turmoil or in conflict. If you look, for example, at the text in verse 42, uh, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus does not want to endure the cup. We'll talk about what the cup is and all that, but uh, Jesus is not, is not willing. He, he does not want to, but he says, but not my will but yours be done. Now, if you're a convinced Christian, uh, you, you will immediately put any questions that that text might bring to mind down and not really ask them. But we're going to ask those questions of the text when we get there. I just want to cue you into that. Also, when we get there in verse 43 and 44 in the text, another question is going to come up. Uh, some of you in your Bibles might have a little footnote uh, on those verses that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain these Verses, verse 43 and verse 44. And so we're going to have to wrestle with that a little bit. Now, uh, those, the stretches in this text are not just theological and they're not just academic uh, in terms of textual criticism. Um, the stretches in this text are also very practical. For instance, uh, Jesus uh, says to the disciples twice in the text, pray that you may not enter into temptation uh, he says it first in verse 40, and then again in verse 46, pray that you may not enter into temptation. We can ask the question, well, what if I do pray, and I ask God for deliverance from temptation, and yet I still feel tempted the next day, or I still feel tempted later that day? It's a very practical question. And so this text is going to press us in a number of number of ways. Uh, let me put the main idea in front of you before we get started. Uh, the point of this text is that God will provide. That's the point of this text. Jesus has already given practical instruction to his disciples in the Lord's Supper and the instructions that follow that. And all of those instructions, you, you might remember last week I talked about, they are very practical instructions. He warns practically, he encourages practically, he instructs practically. Now, in this text, we get another practical instruction from our Lord, and that instruction can be found in the command to pray, particularly because of our situation and circumstance in life. And the point of Jesus telling us to pray is because God answers prayer. God provides, he provides answers to prayer, 
And if you're thinking, well, how does that work out in this, that, and the other situation, hang on, we'll get there. But uh, before we can get to that main point, we have to see, we have to first zoom out and look at all of the verses together. So if you look uh, at the big picture, most of your Bibles will have this in one big paragraph from verse 39 to verse 46, kind of blocked off from maybe the rest uh, in the sense that it's a paragraph, right? They would, most Bibles would have that as one unit of thought. And this paragraph has uh, a structural symmetry to it. Now, uh, what that, it's a fancy way of saying uh, Whoever wrote this, and I think Luke wrote this, they wrote it with uh, intent, meaning they wanted you to not just get the point of what they were writing, but they're also writing it with a lot of uh, design and structure so you can get the main point of what they're writing. Now that structure, uh, if, you'll, if you'll just look at a big picture with me, if you look at verse 39, that's really the introduction that kind of introduces us to the scene. Uh, Jesus came and went, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples go with him, Okay. But the structure starts in verse 40. Verse 40 and verse 46 mirror one another because of the request and the instruction of Jesus. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 40 and verse 46. Going in one level deeper, verse 41 and verse 45, uh, Jesus goes to prayer and kneels. And in verse 45, he rises from prayer and returns to his disciples. You see the structural symmetry there? In verse 42 and verse 44, Jesus wrestles in prayer. In the first hand, saying, not my will, but yours be done. In the second hand, sweating like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is actually praying. And then the main thing, so these, kind of, these layers kind of come in deeper and deeper. And then that middle layer is verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And the reason I'm pointing out this structure is because when when you see a structure like this in Scripture, the middle of that structure is the point of the passage. So if we peel those layers back, the point of this text, that what Luke really wants you to know, is that the angel comes from heaven to strengthen Jesus in the hour of his agony. That's the point. That's the main thing that Luke is, is getting you towards. It's kind of like when you were... Uh, taught to write essays growing up in school. Uh, you probably told how to write a, a three-paragraph essay. That sounds familiar to you. Uh, you write an introduction. You write a conclusion. You write three body paragraphs. And in those body paragraphs, you're supposed to have a, a main idea. You're supposed to introduce an argument and then give evidence. And then argument and evidence. And argument and evidence. And then next paragraph, right? So you're supposed to write essays like this because that's how you write essays. So that if you're reading an essay from someone else, you know what to expect. At the beginning of this essay, I'm going to get their main overarching idea. If I skip to the end, I'll get their summary thoughts. And if I want to see their arguments along the way, I can go and find them. That's how we write in the West. Um, What Luke is doing here in his structure is telling you the main point is that middle piece, that that the angel came to strengthen Jesus. Okay, that's the main point. That's, That's just zooming out. Okay, so let's go then verse by verse through it. Verse 40 is when Jesus gives the command, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then verse 41, he goes and withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So Jesus tells his disciples, you should pray. And then he himself goes and prays. Now, Jesus and the disciples are in the Mount of, uh, in the Mount of Olives praying, but uh, they're praying for very different things. Okay? Uh, Jesus is praying for his own suffering which he is about to endure 
And the disciples are supposed to pray for themselves to not enter into temptation. Now, in one sense, that's a very similar kind of thing because both are being tempted in this moment. Jesus to not endure the suffering and the disciples who are about to be tempted. But the difference between Jesus and the disciples is Jesus is uh, aware of what's going on. He's aware of what to pray for in a way that the disciples are not. So if you want to see that, look at verse 45, where when Jesus rises from prayer, he comes to the disciples and finds them sleeping. So although Jesus seems to think it's important that they stay awake and pray, the disciples think it's more important that they rest and they sleep. So at the very least, while Jesus is instructing them to pray, uh, they don't feel necessarily the same pressure to pray that Jesus seems to feel for them and that Jesus seems to feel for himself. So there's this instruction for us to pray. And when I say us, it's because this, this extends in layers. So Jesus models for us prayer in this text. He himself prays. Then if you go one layer out, he tells his disciples that they should pray because they're going to be tempted. And as we will see in the rest of the writings of the New Testament, all of the apostles in writing to the churches will say something like, uh, you should pray. Pray for encouragement. Pray that you may not be tempted. Pray to the Lord and beseech him and, and uh, pray to him. And Paul even offers, in many cases, prayers on behalf of other churches um, as one who is interested in their, in their good. So the point is, prayer is something that as Christians we know we ought to do or instructed to. Uh, here is one snapshot of why prayer is so central to the Christian life. Um, because of the reality of temptation, prayer is essential. Now, you'll remember, this is not the first time Jesus has told the disciples, even within the last 24-hour period, if we're thinking about, you know, 2,000 years ago in that way. Um, he's, he's already told them they're going to be tempted, right? If you just look, for example, in Luke chapter 22, just back a couple of verses to verse 31, you'll notice that Jesus says to Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, last week I pointed out to you that's, that you in the English text is plural, meaning Satan decided, decided uh, he wanted to sift all of you, meaning you 12. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So Jesus has already told them in a public hearing, specifically to Simon, Satan has told me this is his game plan. He wants to sift you, all of you. But Simon, I prayed for you that, you may not, that your faith may not fail. So he's already told them Satan's out to get them. In the course of the next couple hours, they're going to see that acutely. But he's already warned them once that this is going to happen. And then again here in the garden twice, he says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And again in verse 46, similarly, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, if you think that Satan was only after the disciples and his, his conflict with Jesus and, and, and the Godhead stops in the first century AD, you would be mistaken. Because the thing that Satan loves to do more than anything else is to try to thwart, as best as he may, the plans of God. Now, if you're a strong believer in the sovereignty of God as I am, you know that Satan cannot actually thwart the plans of God. But that does not mean that as Christians we are off the hook to pray so that our prayers might be the means by which Satan is restrained. One of the main ways that Satan wants to thwart the gospel is by thwarting the church. 
And the way that Satan gets after the church is by getting after individual members of the church. That can happen in a number of ways. It can happen through individual personal sin, which after a time of being unchecked can grow and multiply and devastate relationships, community, family, you name it. Sin can grow and multiply. So if you are a Christian struggling with sin, do not think for one moment that is your struggle alone because soon it will be the struggle of your Christian brothers and sisters and ultimately of the body. If you want to think of examples of this, consider how many, when they give over to their sin, show themselves to be poor witnesses for Christ and how difficult that makes it for you as a Christian to witness about Christ to others who have seen it poorly done. So we know when Christians are given over to sin that they can, that they can hurt not just themselves but also the rest of the body as well in that process. That's one of the ways that Satan is after the church. Individual sin. And so, now what should you do, Christian? You should pray, not just for yourself and the sins which lurk in your own heart, but also for your brothers and sisters. That they would be victorious in their struggle against sin. And, not, and, and that's not something you should pray whenever you feel like sin is encroaching, but as a regular habit of prayer. Uh, just like uh, we know that we sleep to keep good health in ourselves, we exercise to keep good health in ourselves, we eat healthy because it keeps good health. So too, prayer for yourself to be guarded against temptation and prayer for others to be guarded against temptation keeps up the health of the body. It's a preventative measure that we are to undertake. Similarly, uh, that's just not the only way Satan works. He also works to bring disunity within the church. What that would mean is not one-on-one, or I should say individual sin, which grows kind of in a dark corner and then blows up in your face, In this case, I'm thinking about the kind of divisions that can be sowed even between people who love the Lord and those divisions happen to break their relationships with one another. These would be more uh, public sins like um, gossip, slander, um, things that we do uh, which are not really done in the heart so much as they are done out in the world with other Christians, or I should say against others. That's one way in which Satan can work to sow division in the body and ultimately If you have a divided church and Christians who can't get along, what does that say to the world? It says this God can't even reconcile Christians to one another. How could he reconcile you to himself who's perfect? So as Christians, what are we to do? We forgive, we pursue unity, and also we are to pray so that we as a a believing body would not be given over into that kind of a temptation either, to division, to that kind of disunity that is unbecoming of believers. There's that which can thwart Christians. And then there's the temptation to think that you are untemptable. And that's a a kind of play on words way to say, you need to estimate yourself accurately as a Christian. And to have an accurate estimate of yourself, you need to recognize not only will you be tempted, but you are not sufficient in yourself to resist the temptation. I already pointed you back a couple of verses to Peter and how Jesus warns Peter. Now, you'll remember Peter's response to verse 33 of chapter 22. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says to Peter, you will be sifted. I've prayed for you. Peter says, not a problem. I will die for you. 
And the Lord accurately tells Peter, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Peter has a poor self-assessment. He thinks he's doing better than he is. And really, that's all of our positions generally with sin and temptation. We think we're doing better than we are. And so we think, I can handle it. I'm strong enough for it, whatever it is. The reason I'm being uh, general about that is because while Peter's temptation is to deny Jesus in the face of adversity, uh, that could be your temptation. But there are unique sins to each of our hearts that Satan will particularly tempt us with. And whatever your sin struggle is, will be the place where you feel most confident to not have to pray. Because if you've had victory for a period of time in a certain area, you might become lax or complacent or things like that. And that is when uh, you are most prone to fall back into sin. So uh, I'm saying all this to say, twice in this text, Jesus tells the disciples to pray that they would not enter into temptation. And we as disciples of Christ would be fools not to heed his warning. That we would also pray preventatively that we would not enter into temptation. Now, two more things to say on that. Um, If I could speak to the women first and then to the men as well. Uh, Women, if you are going to follow general trends about men and women, your general tendency in place of prayer will be talking to other people about the thing that you're struggling with or the thing that you're going through instead of praying about it. Now, talking to Christians and talking to other wise counsel and getting advice on a difficult situation is not a bad thing. In fact, it's encouraged all over Scripture. But it is not a supplement for or a replacement of prayer to God to resist temptation. So yes, seek godly counsel. Seek counsel from other Christians. Get others to pray for you and also pray that we would not supplement prayer for good Christian or even good godly conversation and think that that's a one-to-one replacement. It is not. And if I can speak to the men, your temptation will not be to converse with others about things that you're going through, but rather to think internally to yourself, I need to just push on and persevere. And that you would in fact not share that struggle with anyone or pray about it, but rather you would within yourself Find the strength to keep going forward. And even with warning lights going on and warning signs going off, to continue to pursue that in isolation, thinking of yourself as self-sufficient. Now, if you're uh, a gal, you could, you could have that temptation as well. I'm not saying that doesn't exist for women. And if you're a man, you could also have the temptation to uh, rather converse than pray. What I'm telling you is, in general, be aware of yourself and your tendency and pray. Be aware of what you think would replace prayer and acknowledge that that is just not prayer. And you should pray, both individually, with other Christians, with families, with the body assembled as a whole, and you should do so regularly that you would not enter into temptation. The mark of a mature Christian church, among a number of other things, is that the church would be a praying body of believers. Prayer is a mark of Christian maturity. So, so often in the West, we aspire to academic knowledge, theological understanding as marks of Christian maturity. Yes, they are. But we don't think about prayer often in that same way. And prayer, I submit to you, is more a mark of spiritual maturity, maturity than 
uh, academic uh, knowledge and understanding. I say that because if you pray consistently to the Lord on a regular basis, it's very difficult to do that and be a false convert. But there are those who know more about the Bible than you do right now who are atheists, who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, who deny the God whom the Scriptures point to. So academic knowledge is not actually a strong mark of Christian maturity. It's one of the marks. I submit to you prayer is a stronger mark of Christian maturity. So Jesus is telling his disciples to pray in this text. And if you go in one layer further uh, in that kind of structure, not only does he tell them to pray, but he himself goes and prays. And then we can ask the question, what does he pray about? I was going to bring up that first difficulty I said in the text, uh, that Jesus seems to be at conflict with himself and with God about what is going to happen next. So if you look at verse 42, here's Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you look at verse uh, 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus prays, and, not, and he doesn't just pray in a cold, calculated kind of way. He prays earnestly with his whole self because of the agony which he is about to endure. So we can ask the difficult question, why does Jesus seem to be uh, let's say, why does Jesus say, have, to, have to say something like, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And he's speaking to God. And if you're an Orthodox Christian, you would say, but Jesus is God. So how does he say, not my will, but your will be done? Well, it probably won't surprise you to know Christians have already thought about and answered this question. So let me uh, introduce you to how the church has thought about this historically. And we need to look at this because uh, often, uh, because of how, uh, how weak our connection is to the history of the church, uh, particularly in the Christian West, um, we don't know these historical answers, and so therefore we uh, will flounder at a question like this, or we will, we will truly not know how to respond. And so I would encourage you, don't turn a blind eye to a question like this, but rather ask the question, and let's see if we can get a satisfactory response from the history of the church. So Jesus has not his will being done, but he submits himself to the will of God the Father. Jesus is God, the church says, and other scriptures will say as well. In fact, Luke has said several times in his gospel already things like Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. And he will later say in about one chapter to Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man seated on the clouds of glory, and Caiaphas says he has committed blasphemy. So Jesus seems to think of himself as God, as the messianic savior of the, Christian, of the Jewish people. And so here, but then here Jesus is submitting himself to the will of God. Does God have multiple wills within himself? We would say we as Christians worship one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Godhead, the three persons of the Godhead, are united in that they have one divine will. Whatever the Father wills, the Son also wills, and the Holy Spirit also wills. That is what it means to have one God. We do not worship three gods as Christians, we worship one God, united by one will. You might say, but what about this text where Jesus says he submits his will 
to the will of God. Well, Jesus is part of the Godhead. He has one will, one divine will. But Jesus, remember, is also the God-man, truly God and truly man. He also has a true human nature, which means a true human will. So while the Godhead has one will, and you as a person have one will, Jesus has two wills because he is both truly God and truly man. Now, in the uh, 7th century AD, the church wrestled with this and uh, established the orthodox position on this. And they, they said it in this way, that Jesus is both true God and true man. That was affirmed in the Council of Nicaea 300 years prior. But then the question is, well, what about his will? Does he have two wills at war within himself? Does, he, does the two wills uh, come together so that Jesus has one will? How, how does this work? So uh, this is, and if you're uh, interested in the academic side of this, this, is called the monophysite heresy or the monothelite heresy, that there is one will within Jesus, the monothelite. And so here's, how the church, here's what the church has. Jesus has a divine will and a human will. And those wills come together in the incarnation without a confusion of wills, meaning they don't just blend together to create some kind of new hybrid will, kind of God and kind of man. So it doesn't come together and confuse the two wills. And it also doesn't come together and divide the two wills such that they are at war within themselves. Uh, Such that Jesus, uh, if you've ever seen uh, the Emperor's New Groove, uh, there's a, a character in there, Kronk, who has like two, uh, like an evil cronk and a good cronk on his shoulders that are telling him what to do and not to do. That's not what Jesus is like. He's not at war within himself about what to do. So his wills come together, his divine and human will come together in the incarnation without confusion, without division. And uh, if, you're, if you're thinking about this, uh, this is not in the, in the creed, but we, we might say it this way, it's without dilution such that the, God, the, the divine will is not uh, in some way diluted by the human will, and the human will is not in some way lessened by the divine will, such that the human will is really just along for the ride, and the divine will is really driving the person Jesus. But they unite together in this way. Now you might say, that seems awful complex. And it is awful complex, because what, right now we're talking about the fringe of human understanding about God. We would say, as Christians, this is an accurate way to summarize what's going on, but not an exhaustive way to understand what's going on. We do not have, nor will we as finite creatures, have an exhaustive knowledge of God. What we know is that we have these boundaries. He has a human will and a divine will, and they are not at war or confused within himself. And so as he speaks in the text here saying, not my will, but yours be done, he's speaking in relation to his human will, saying, That the human person of Jesus is in agony for what he is about to endure in his suffering. And he says, let this cup pass from me. That does not mean that God is at war with himself or that the son is uh, against his will sacrificed to the father. Jesus goes willingly to the cross, but not in a way that's emotionless because he's a human. So uh, if you think that's a strange thing to say, by the way, that um, we could have uh, an accurate understanding of something, but not an exhaustive understanding. Um, I think I've used this example before, uh, but if you've ever taken just a normal level physics class, uh, you know that uh, in light, 
there's this particle that has both a, a wave property and a particle property, meaning if you run some experiments on light waves, they behave like waves, meaning they, they follow a certain kind of distribution, and sometimes they behave like individual particles. Okay? Now, if, if you're talking to a, a regular level high school physics student, they would say to you, that doesn't make sense because waves are not particles and particles are not waves. And I would say, yes. And if you go to the experts, they can grasp with quantum mechanics and try to begin to explain it to you, but even they would say, we do not have an exhaustive knowledge of how these things work. And we don't say, I don't believe in light. But people will say, these two things seem to be at odds with one another, therefore I do not believe in the incarnation. Okay? So all I'm telling you is that the church has thought about this, and it's not contradictory to say he has two wills united and not divided. But I'm telling you, it does not exhaustively explain what's going on. Okay? So uh, that, that's the issue of Jesus submitting himself to the will of the Father. Now, the cup that he's telling that he wants to pass from him, uh, if you hear Jesus talking about the cup, you should think back to the Lord's Supper where Jesus says to the disciples, here, drink this cup. Right? You remember in the Lord's Supper in verses 14 through 23 of chapter 22, Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. He's giving it to the disciples saying, drink. And now here's another cup, which Luke is using the word intentionally, to draw our minds back there. And he's, telling, he's saying to the Father, remove this cup from me, this other cup. What's going on here is Jesus does not want to endure the cup of the wrath of God. Now, if you want to see allusions to this, you can look all throughout the Old Testament. Um, I just want to look at one place. It's a place we've been often in Luke's Gospel. Go to Isaiah chapter 51, and you'll see this imagery of the cup. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51, um, I'll begin in verse 17. Uh, there's a couple of verses where the cup is referenced. Hi, Calvin. <laughs> Isaiah 51, verse 17. Uh, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of of staggering. What he's saying to Jerusalem is, have you not experienced the judgment of God enough? Will you not wake up from your sins? The cup of the wrath of God poured out on the city. Look at verse 19. Though these two things have happened to you, who will console you? Devastation and destruction and famine and sword. Who will comfort you? And then if you look at verse 22 of the same text, thus says the Lord uh, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads for the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink it no more. And instead, God turns his wrath towards the enemies of his people. Now the question is, how can God in the face of blatant sin against Jerusalem revoke his wrath? They haven't repented. They haven't turned. They haven't said to the Lord, we're sorry, we will turn from our wicked ways. Jerusalem continues in her wicked ways. So how can God pull the cup off of them? Well, it's because of the work of Christ, which he is to do on behalf of his people. He is going to drink the cup of the wrath of God so that his disciples can drink of the cup of the new covenant and all Christians can drink of the cup of the new covenant instead. He drinks the bitter cup. 
and we drink the cup of blessing, which is ours to enjoy because of what he has done on our behalf. He drinks it down to the last drop so that we don't have to. Now, what I just said about him being truly man is very relevant here because in order for him to drink the cup rightly in our stead, he must be a representative for humanity. He is our advocate. He is the one who rightly has lived a life that we could never have lived because of our fallen human nature. And he goes and presents his perfect obedience to the Father and says, I will take the wrath. Give them the blessing which is bestowed upon me. And this is Jesus in his work as our advocate. So that as Christians, when we sin, we do not fear the cup of the wrath of God, nor are we complacent in our sin, such as though sin does not affect us, but we long to be in obedience to God, which has rightly been purchased by Jesus. And so we both hate sin and want our sin to be gone so that we can rightly enjoy fellowship with God. And also we do not fear death or destruction because of the work of Jesus. The author of Hebrews makes this clear um, because of his perfect mediation, uh, the kind of grief that we experience is not the kind of grief that the world experiences. Because we have a kind of sorrow that leads us to repentance, and uh, a worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. It just leads to despair. So as Christians, we can be sorrowful over our sin, and it causes us to repent, and not to be sorrowful to the point of agony and despair, because Jesus went through that pit for you. So that's what Jesus is doing. That's the whole point of his suffering in the garden. And if you want to say, well, this is a fictional agony that's going on. In verse 44, Jesus is in agony, praying more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, the text nowhere seems to indicate that Jesus is going about this casually. The text does not want you to understand that Jesus is just coasting through this part of the process. He's in agony for what's to come. Now, I mentioned to you uh, uh, that those verses are disputed, verse 43 and verse 44. Um, I don't have time to get into all of the textual issues right now, but um, there's a split decision in the scholarly community about whether verse 43 and verse 44 should be included. I'm mentioning this to you so that if you read that in the footnote, you don't think I'm just ignoring data that's out there. Um, the majority of conservative Christian scholars have good reason to keep this in the original text and to think that these verses are, in fact, original to Luke's gospel. And I'm saying this, if you have questions about any of those things that you want to talk more about, I'd be happy to talk to you about that at any point in time. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, one Christian scholar, Dirk Yunkind, uh, he says with regards to these verses that while we cannot be certain that these verses are absolutely original, we can have a great enough confidence that we ought to include them in the text of our Bibles. So he says regarding these verses. And no matter if you keep them or leave them, the thrust of the passage remains the same. In fact, if you were to remove verse 43 and verse 44 for, let's say, some theological problem like Jesus is in agony in the garden, why would you not also just remove verse 42, which says that he's submitting himself to the will of the Father? 
So if you were doing an editorial redaction to say, I need to edit this to make Jesus look better, why would you leave verse 42 in but keep verse 43 and verse 44 out? So there's not a theological conspiracy going on where Christians are trying to manipulate the text to make Jesus look better. Uh, we have great confidence to say these verses are original and we can have confidence in them. Okay, now the reason I say that is because the next and main point I think of this passage comes from verse 43, and I said this at the beginning. There appears to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. I told you the point of this text is that God will provide. And our number one confidence that God will provide is not just that he tells us he will provide, not just that he provided for other saints in history gone past, but also that Christ in his suffering is provided for. An angel comes from heaven to minister to Christ in his suffering to strengthen him. If Jesus, who is currently being forsaken by God because of the wrath which is upon him, can have his provisions met by an angel, you, who have the blessings of God bestowed upon you because of Christ's work, will be provided for. You have every confidence. Now, the mistake that we make is thinking that God's provision must look a certain kind of way. Uh, Two years ago now, um, I I tore my uh, pectoral tendon and I went and had surgery on it. And uh, one of the things that happened when I was being brought in for surgery is the doctor explains to me how, you know, anesthesia is dangerous. There's all this kind of concerns. Um, Do you consent to going under general anesthesia to have this operation done? And I was like, show me where to sign. Because... I do not want to be awake if you're going to be cutting around in my shoulder and reattaching things and sewing things. I do not want to experience that. So how did the doctor provide for me? Put me under general anesthesia. They shot a, like a numbing nerve agent in my arm as well. I couldn't feel my arm for a couple of days. It was wonderful. <laughs> and the mistake Christians can make is thinking that God's provision must look something like that. Where we don't experience pain, we don't experience the hardship, we don't experience the difficulty, that is what his, most, his provision must look like. When Christ experiences the provision of God, he is strengthened to go on suffering. And so I don't think it's beyond the scope of possibility, Christian, that whatever you're facing, you may be strengthened to go on in the difficulty. To go on suffering. Now the encouragement we should draw from that is the encouragement Abraham draws in the book of Hebrews when he is to offer his son Isaac on the altar. What Abraham, he's going through that suffering, going through that pain. He's wondering how will God provide? And we often think about that and go, why why was Abraham comfortable sacrificing Isaac on the altar? The book of Hebrews tells us is that Abraham had faith that God could even resurrect the dead. So how does Abraham uh, think that God will provide? Well, he thinks even if Isaac dies from this, this sacrifice, God can provide. He can resurrect the dead. So, Christian, what if you die in your suffering, die with the thing you're facing currently, or you lose friend or life or limb or respectability for your suffering? What if you suffer in pain bodily for the rest of your earthly life? What if that? Well, God can provide for you by resurrecting you in glory and causing you to enjoy an eternity of fellowship with him such that there is not one sacrifice you've made in this life 
for his sake, which will not be paid tenfold and a hundredfold and in an incomparable glory in the life to come. How does God provide for us? By ministering to us in the moment, practically, and also by promising us the work is not yet finished. This is what Paul says, right? Romans chapter 8, I do not consider the sufferings of this current time to be compared to the eternal weight of glory which is waiting for us. So whatever you're suffering through, God's provision could look like strength for the next day. Now what if you pray for God to remove temptation from you and the temptation doesn't just go away? It doesn't just, it's not just like a, a numbing shot like I had in my arm where I just don't feel it anymore. Well, maybe his provision is that you've survived this day of temptation so that you can pray the next day for another grace of temptation to face it the next day and the next moment and the next and the next and the next. And he will never leave you nor forsake you is his promise. So that we have every confidence that God will provide for us as he provides for Christ, as he provides for the disciples, and as church history would tell us, he provides for countless saints in their lives. So here is Luke's text, which teaches us about the grace of God to strengthen us in our weakness and the word to us that we ought to pray in light of his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, you are our God and King. And it is through your grace that we can know and come to learn and understand about all that you have done for us. Christ, we thank you for your powerful work of suffering in our place. Would we not be slow and dull towards that? But would you give us eyes to see and understand your work of mediation, which you have done in our place, and that we would worship you rightly in response for what you have done. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would minister to our hearts. We are weak and feeble and faltering. Would you give us grace upon grace upon grace to walk in faithfulness before our God? We thank you and we praise your name. Amen.